just about right in the middle of chapter one in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. At the baker's, she picked out four buns, carefully choosing those with the most sugar. She met Neely outside the store. He peeped into the bag and cut a caper of delight when he saw the buns. Although he had eaten four cents worth of candy that morning, he was very hungry and made Francie run all the way home. Papa did not come home for dinner. He was a freelance singing waiter, which meant that he didn't work very often. Usually, he spent Saturday morning at Union headquarters waiting for a job to come in for him. Francie, Neely, and Mama had a very fine meal. Each had a thick slice of the tongue, two pieces of sweet-smelling rye bread spread with unsalted butter, a sugar bun apiece, and a mug of strong hot coffee with a teaspoon of sweetened condensed milk on the side. There was a special Nolan idea about the coffee. It was their one great luxury. Mama made a big potful each morning and reheated it for dinner and supper and it got stronger as the day wore on. It was an awful lot of water and very little coffee, but Mama put a lump of chicory in it, which made it taste strong and bitter. Each one was allowed three cups a day with milk. Other times, you could help yourself to a cup of black coffee anytime you felt like it. Sometimes, when you had nothing at all, and it was raining, and you were alone in the flat, it was wonderful to know that you could have something, even though it was only a cup of black and bitter coffee. Neely and Francie loved coffee, but seldom drank it. Today, as usual, Neely let his coffee stand black and ate his condensed milk spread on bread. He sipped a little of the black coffee for the sake of formality. Mama poured out Francie's coffee and put the milk even in it, even though she knew that the child wouldn't drink it. Francie loved the smell of coffee and the way it was hot. As she ate her bread and meat, she kept one hand curved about the cup, enjoying its warmth. From time to time, she'd smell the bitter sweetness of it. That was better than drinking it. At the end of the meal, it went down the sink. Mama had two sisters, Sissy and Evie, who came to the flat often. Every time they saw the coffee thrown away, they gave Mama a lecture about wasting things. Mama explained, Francie is entitled to one cup each meal like the rest. If it makes her feel better to throw it away rather than to drink it, all right. I think it's good that people like us can waste something once in a while and get the feeling of how it would be to have lots of money and not have to worry about scrounging. This queer point of view satisfied Mama and pleased Francie. It was one of the links between the ground-down poor and the wasteful rich. The girl felt that even if she had less than anybody in Williamsburg, somehow she had more. She was richer because she had something to waste. She ate her sugar bun slowly, reluctant to have done with its sweet taste, while the coffee got ice cold. Regally, she poured it down the sink drain, feeling casually extravagant. 
After that, she was ready to go to Losher's for the family's semi-weekly supply of stale bread. Mama told her that she could take a nickel and buy a stale pie if she could get one that wasn't mashed too much. Losher's Bread Factory supplied the neighborhood stores. The bread was not wrapped in wax paper and grew stale quickly. Losher's redeemed the stale bread from the dealers and sold it at half price to the poor. The outlet store adjoined the bakery. Its long, narrow counter filled one side and long, narrow benches ran along the other two sides. A huge double door opened behind the counter. The bakery wagons backed up to it and unloaded the bread right onto the counter. They sold two loaves for a nickel, and when it was dumped out, a pushing crowd fought for the privilege of buying it. There was never enough bread, and some waited until three or four wagons had reported before they could buy bread. At that price, the customers had to supply their own wrappings. Most of the purchasers were children. Some kids tucked the bread under their arms and walked home brazenly, letting all the world know that they were poor. The proud ones wrapped up the bread, some in old newspapers, others in clean or dirty flour sacks. Francie brought along a large paper bag. She didn't try to get her bread right away. She sat on a bench and watched. A dozen kids pushed and shouted at the counter. Four old men dozed on the opposite bench. The old men, pensioners on their families, were made to run errands and mind babies, the only work left for old, worn-out men in Williamsburg. They waited as long as they could before buying because Losher's smelled kindly of baking bread and the sun coming in the windows felt good on their old backs. They sat and dozed while the hours passed and felt that they were filling up time. The waiting gave them a purpose in life for a little while and almost they felt necessary again. Francie stared at the oldest man. She played her favorite game, figuring out about people. His thin, tangled hair was the same dirty gray as the stubble standing on his sunken cheeks. Dried spittle caked the corners of his mouth. He yawned. He had no teeth. She watched, fascinated and revolted, as he closed his mouth, drew his lips inward until there was no mouth, and made his chin come up to almost meet his nose. She studied his old coat with the padding hanging out of the torn sleeve seam. His legs were sprawled wide in helpless relaxation, and one of the buttons was missing from his grease-caked pants opening. She saw that his shoes were battered and broken open at the toes. One shoe was laced with a much-knotted shoestring, and the other with a bit of dirty twine. She saw two thick, dirty toes with creased gray toenails. Her thoughts ran. He is old. He must be past 70. He was born about the time Abraham Lincoln was living and getting himself ready to be president. Williamsburg must have been a little country place then and maybe Indians were still living in Flatbush. That was so long ago. She kept staring at his feet. He was a baby once. He must have been sweet and clean and his mother kissed his little pink toes. 
Maybe when it thundered at night, she came to his crib and fixed his blanket better and whispered that he mustn't be afraid that mother was there. Then she picked him up and put her cheek on his head and said that he was her own sweet baby. He might have been a boy like my brother, running in and out of the house and slamming the door. And while his mother scolded him, she was thinking that maybe he'll be president someday. Then he was a young man, strong and happy. When he walked down the street, the girls smiled and turned to watch him. He smiled back, and maybe he winked at the prettiest one. I guess he must have married and had children, and they thought he was the most wonderful papa in the world, the way he worked hard and bought them toys for Christmas. Now his children are getting old too, like him, and they have children. And nobody wants the old man anymore, and they're waiting for him to die. But he don't want to die. He wants to keep on living even though he's so old and there's nothing to be happy about anymore. The place was quiet. The summer sun streamed in and made dusty, down-slanting roads from the window to the floor. A big green fly buzzed in and out of the sunny dust. Excepting for herself and the dozing old man, the place was empty. The children who waited for bread had gone to play outside. Their high, screaming voices seemed to come from far away. Suddenly, Francie jumped up. Her heart was beating fast. She was frightened. For no reason at all, she thought of an accordion pulled out full for a rich note. Then she had an idea that the accordion was closing, closing, closing. A terrible panic that had no name came over her as she realized that many of the sweet babies in the world were born to come to something like this old man someday. She had to get out of that place or it would happen to her. Suddenly, she would be an old woman with toothless gums and feet that disgusted people. At that moment, the double doors behind the counter were banged open as a bread truck backed up. A man came to stand behind the counter. The truck driver started throwing bread to him, which he piled up on the counter. The kids in the street who had heard the doors thrown open piled in and milled around Francie, who had already reached the counter. I want bread, Francie called out. A big girl gave her a strong shove and wanted to know who she thought she was. Never mind, never mind, Francie told her. I want six loaves and a pie not too crushed, she screamed out. Impressed by her intensity, the counterman shoved six loaves and the least battered of the rejected pies at her and took her two dimes. She pushed her way out of the crowd, dropping a loaf which she had trouble picking up as there was no room to stoop over it. Outside, she sat at the curb, fitting the bread and the pie into the paper bag. A woman passed, wheeling a baby in a buggy. The baby was waving his feet in the air. Francie looked and saw, not the baby's foot, but a grotesque thing in a big worn-out shoe. The panic came on her again and she ran all the way home. The flat was empty. Mama had dressed and gone out with Aunt Sissy to see a matinee from the ten-cent gallery seat. Francie put the bread in the pie away and folded the bag neatly to be used the next time. She went into the tiny, windowless bedroom that she shared with Neely and sat on her own cot in the dark, waiting for the waves of panic to stop passing over her. 
After a while, Neely came in, crawled under his cot, and pulled out a ragged catcher's mitt. Where are you going? she asked. Play ball in the lots? Can I come along? No. She followed him down to the street. Three of his gang were waiting for him. One had a bat, another a baseball, and the third had nothing but wore a pair of baseball pants. They started out for an empty lot over towards Greenpoint. Neely saw Francie following, but said nothing. One of the boys nudged him and said, Hey, your sister's following us. Yeah, agreed Neely. The boy turned around and yelled at Francie. Go chase yourself! It's a free country, Francie stated. It's a free country, Neely repeated to the boy. They took no notice of Francie after that. She continued to follow them. She had nothing to do until two o'clock when the neighborhood library opened up again. It was a slow horse playing walk. The boys stopped to look for tinfoil in the gutter and picked up cigarette butts, which they would save and smoke in the cellar on the next rainy afternoon. They took time out to bedevil the little Jew boy on his way to the temple. They detained him while they debated what to do with him. The boy waited, smiling humbly. The Christians released him finally with a detailed instructions as to his course of conduct for the coming week. Don't show your puss on DeVoe Street, he was ordered. I won't, he promised. The boys were disappointed. They had expected more fight. One of them took out a bit of chalk from his pocket and drew a wavy line on the sidewalk. He commanded, Don't you even step over that line. The little boy, knowing that he had offended them by giving in too easily, decided to play their way. Can't I even put one foot in the gutter, fellers? You can't even spit in the gutter, he was told. All right, he sighed and pretend resignation. One of the bigger boys had an inspiration. And keep away from Christian girls, get me? They walked away, leaving him staring after them. Golly, he whispered, rolling his big brown Jewish eyes. The idea of those goyim thought him man enough to be capable of thinking about any girl, Gentile or Jew, staggered him, and then he went his way saying, golly, over and over. The boys walked on slowly, looking slyly at the big boy who had made the remark about the girls, and wondering whether he would lead off into a dirty talk session. But before this could start, Francie heard her brother say, I know that kid. He's a white Jew. Neely had heard Papa speak so of a Jewish bartender that he liked. They ain't no such thing as a white Jew, said the big boy. Well, if there was such a thing as a white Jew, said Neely with the combination of agreeing with others and still sticking to his own opinions, which made him so amiable, he would be it. There never could be a white Jew, said the big boy, even in supposing. Our Lord was a Jew, Neely was quoting Mama. And other Jews turned right around and killed him, clinched the big boy. Before they could go deeper in theology, they saw another little boy turn on Ansley Street from Humboldt Street, carrying a basket on his arm. The basket was covered with a clean, ragged cloth. A stick stuck up from one corner of the basket, and on it, like a sluggish flag, stood six pretzels. 
the big boy of Neely's gang gave a command, and they made a tightly packed run on the pretzel seller. He stood his ground, opened his mouth, and bawled, Mama! A second story window flew open, and a woman clutching a crepe paperish kimono around her sprawling breasts yelled out, Leave him alone and get off this block, you lousy bastards! Francie's hands flew to cover her ears so that at confession she would not have to tell the priest that she had stood and listened to a bad word. We ain't doing nothing, lady, said Neely with that ingratiating smile which always won over his mother. You bet your life you ain't, not while I'm around. Then without changing her tone, she called to her son, and get upstairs here, you. I'll learn you to bother me when I'm taking a nap. The pretzel boy went upstairs and the gang ambled on. That lady's tough, the big boy jerked his head back at the window. Yeah, the others agreed. My old man's tough, offered a smaller boy. Who the hell cares, inquired the big boy languidly. I was just saying, apologized the smaller boy. My old man ain't tough, said Neely. The boys laughed. They ambled along, stopping now and then to breathe deeply of the smell of Newton Creek, which flowed its narrow, tormented way a few blocks up Grand Street. God, she stinks, commented the big boy. Yeah, Neely sounded deeply satisfied. I bet that's the worst stink in the world, bragged another boy. Yeah, and Francie whispered yeah in agreement. She was proud of that smell. It let her know that nearby was a waterway, which, dirty though it was, joined a river that flowed out to the sea. To her, the stupendous stench suggested far-off sailing ships and adventure, and she was pleased with the smell. Just as the boys reached the lot in which there was a ragged diamond tramped out, a little yellow butterfly flew across the weeds. With man's instinct to capture anything running, flying, swimming, or crawling, they gave chase, throwing their ragged caps at it in advance of their coming. Neely caught it. The boys looked at it briefly, quickly lost interest in it, and started up a four-man baseball game of their own devising. They played furiously, cursing, sweating, and punching each other. Every time a stumble bum passed and loitered for a moment, they clowned and showed off. There was a rumor that the Brooklyns had a hundred scouts roaming the streets of a Saturday afternoon, watching lot games and spotting promising players. And there wasn't a Brooklyn boy who wouldn't rather play on the Brooklyn's team than be president of the United States. After a while, Francie got tired of watching them. She knew that they would play and fight and show off until it was time to drift home for supper. It was two o'clock. The librarian should be back from lunch by now. With pleasant anticipation, Francie walked back towards the library.